The Week in Art is sponsored by Christie's. Visit christies.com to find out more about the world's leading auction house since 1766. Auction, private sales, online, art, anytime. Hello, it's The Week in Art. I'm Ben Luke. This week, great women of art history making a comeback. We look at a show of female photographers at the Metropolitan Museum of Art in New York and an organisation building archives of women artists in Paris. We speak to Andrea Nelson, the curator of The New Woman Behind the Camera, an exhibition opening at the Met and touring later to the National Gallery of Art in Washington. We also hear from Camille Morino, a former Centre Pompidou curator, about the Archives of Women Artists Research and Exhibitions, or AWARE, an organisation she founded in order to rewrite art history from a more gender-equal perspective. And in this week's Work of the Week, Irene Zara of the National Museum of Women in the Arts in Washington, D.C., talks about a group of works by Rania Matar. Before all that, the latest episode of our sister podcast, A Brush With, is out now and features the artist Ellen Gallagher. You can find the podcast wherever you're listening now and do subscribe because we have four more episodes coming later this summer. Now, The New Woman Behind the Camera is a groundbreaking exhibition that opens today, the 2nd of July, at the Metropolitan Museum of Art in New York. It promises to rewrite the canon of modernist photography by presenting the work of dozens of female artists who've largely been erased from art history. Featuring 185 photographs, photo books and illustrated magazines, it highlights the output of 120 photographers from over 20 countries who were at the forefront of experimentation from the 1920s to the 1950s. Our senior editor in New York, Nancy Kenny, spoke with the curator of the show, Andrea Nelson, of the Department of Photographs at the National Gallery of Art in Washington, where the show will travel this autumn after its run at the Met. The exhibition charts how the concept of the new woman, or the modern girl, took hold in the 1920s. And I think it was more or less typified by this stylish image of a woman with bobbed hair Uh, striding confidently out into the world to revolutionize photography. How did the idea for this exhibition take root? The seeds of the exhibition really lie in my interest in the photographer Ilsa Bing. Uh, When I started working at the National Gallery of Art back in 2010, uh, I became very interested in Ilsa Bing's work. The National Gallery has over 90 photographs by Bing, And many of those were given by the photographer and her estate in the early 1990s. And, you know, Bing is someone who really made an important contribution to the field of photography. She worked almost exclusively with a 35-millimeter handheld camera. And she was one of the few women photographers that the National Gallery had collected in depth. So I was interested in, in her work. I was interested in exploring, you know, how her life story really exemplified what one thinks about as the interwar new woman photographer. She was brought up in an affluent Jewish uh, household in Frankfurt, Germany. She went to college, but she ends up, you know, abandoning a promising academic career for photography. She moves to Paris in 1930. Of course, Paris was this vital center for artistic experimentation. And, you know, she really develops and builds this promising career. I mean, she's being published regularly during the 1930s. She's participating in photography exhibitions. But of course, this success was cut short when the Nazis took Paris in 1940. She and her husband were actually sent to a concentration camp in southern France. 
they're able to find their way, their passage to the United States. But after, you know, this exile to the United States, she really was never able to gain a comparable professional foothold. By 1959, she's completely stopped practicing photography. Her career, her work is, you know, largely forgotten and, you know, is really not rediscovered until, you know, a few decades later. So for me, I was wanting to think about, well, what about this larger community of women photographers who were entering the field um, in greater numbers after World War I? Who were these women, you know, and, and did their stories match up with Bing's or were their stories different? You know, and I was also interested in thinking about, you know, were there female-led networks um, that maybe, you know, were helping women, you know, come into the field. And I felt at this time, and of course, when I, I started this project, um, you know, around 2014, that the work of women photographers still seemed vastly underrepresented in scholarship and exhibitions you know, of the modern period. What's really unusual about the show is that it has such an international range. We're introduced to female photographers from Japan India, North Africa, Brazil, um, as well as obviously Europe and the United States. Had the new woman largely been regarded as a Western phenomenon before you embarked on your research? Well, I, I do think that the new woman is still largely regarded, you know, as a as a Western trope. And I think in part because it was the European and American press, along with uh, Hollywood films, that really popularized that image. Um, the New Woman was coined in 1894 in Great Britain, and it was linked to the women's suffrage movement, and that quickly moved to the United States. But I found that this New Woman symbol was, was truly a global phenomenon, and in some ways, like photography itself, you know, announced in Europe, but was quickly adopted and transformed by different cultures around the world. So I became inspired to to think more globally about the history of women photographers after reading more about um, the new woman, her existence and global circulation. In two important books, and one is called The New Woman International, which was published in 2011, and The Modern Girl Around the World, which was published in 2008. So this scholarship really enriched and also complicated my understanding of the new woman. And, you know, the, these terms, the new woman and the modern girl, really did apply to a wide range of female identities that were in many ways re-emerging right after World War I. And, you know, the through line, though, from that first generation of late 19th, early 20th century new women to the, uh, you know, reinvention after World War I was this desire for, you know, real women to have greater independence, greater social and political rights, um, you know, the ability to make their own life choices from perhaps working outside the home uh, to whether or not, you know, and when to marry and have children. And so I was thinking about, okay, how does this symbol of female empowerment, right, which signal the change in the understanding of women's roles, how did this context affect the lives of, of women who wanted to be photographers or who were interested in becoming professional photographers? Did they have more opportunities to pick up the camera? 
to become artists, to become professionals as a result of this, this change in thought um, and somewhat change in laws, right? There are suffrage laws being in place for women by, by 1920, say, in the United States. And then did these opportunities exist around the world or were they more just in Europe and the United States? And how did you settle on your focus of the 1920s through the 1950s? In part because that, that is my background um, in the history of photography, uh, my background interest. Uh, my PhD focused on this time period and looked at the production of, of mass-produced photography books. And, of course, women were important to the practice of photography from its beginnings, right, in 1839. But I also wanted to, to dive deeper um, into a particular moment in the history of photography. And, you know, I was very interested in looking at or trying to understand better the relationship between photographic modernism and the modernization of gender roles. And I also find that what is really exciting about this time period is that we see a more global visual culture emerging through print media. This was, of course, aided by new advances in technology, uh, like wire transmission of images. So there was a, a wider circulation, uh, a more global circulation of images. Um, and photography is really becoming such an incredible part of how people are communicating. Um, it becomes a very important way to communicate and to transfer uh, knowledge. And what we see here is that during this period, the, the practice of photography expands astronomically. There is this explosion, really, of photojournalism. You really see documentary practices um, coming to the fore. Commercial and fashion photography was really important and growing at this time. In, in fact, fashion photography is replacing drawings in magazines. And of course, there's this new approach to artistic photography and studio portraiture is as popular, even more popular, you know, than it had been um, in the past. So I was very interested in really looking at how women were impacting this diversification of the practice during the 1920s to the 1950s. The show starts with the sampling of self-portraits by these women, as well as portraits taken of them by others. Um, are there any striking ones that you'd like to single out, or would you like to talk about what those portraits have to tell us? Well, one really amazing portrait, and I think this has become a signature portrait for the exhibition, is that of um, Suneko Sasamoto with her camera while she was on an assignment in 1940. And this was right at the beginning of her career as a, as a photographer. And she came into the field, you know, almost by happenstance. Um, she was fresh out of school. She had studied uh, pattern design and she had attended art courses and she was looking for a job. And as the story goes, um, a family connection had landed her an interview um, with the head of the Japan Photo Library. And so she went to his office, which was full of all these different publications, and she learned about the photographer Margaret Burke White, who had been you know, working for Life magazine. And she was then asked if she wanted to become Japan's first woman photojournalist. And she accepted on the spot. She was like, yes, of course, I want to, I want to do this. Um, but she really had little to no experience in the field. And she was very worried that her parents wouldn't approve of her becoming a photographer. So in this portrait, 
Sasamoto is still learning how to use her camera, but it is this amazing portrait that shows her as this very modern woman. The construction of the portrait has the modern look, right? She's standing in front of a, an Art Deco-styled building. The photographer who, who took this image of her um, is shooting her from below. The angle of the composition is, is more by diagonal. It's very dynamic. Um, and so it has this aesthetically modern uh, look to it. There's also, I think, a really great portrait, more of a behind-the-scenes look, at the fashion photographer, Tony Frizzell. And she's at work, you know, on a fashion shoot. And this image was taken by her protege, another woman photographer, by the name of Frances McLaughlin Gill. And McGill is showing us the whole construction, right, of fashion photography. Frizzell's busy at work. We see the landscape outside of the fashion shoot and she's outdoors it's it's summertime but the models are dressed in their winter ski fashions so we're seeing the artists involved right in in fashion photography but what's also intriguing is that in the foreground we see Frizzell's husband who's playing and taking care of their daughter so there's also this uh, really compelling gender reversal going on Interesting. Did many of these women characterize themselves as feminists? I'm not sure if they did. What I don't want to do with this exhibition is just, you know, simply equate women photographers with with the new woman. Um, And, you know, for me, the new woman is this historical and conceptual framework that allows me to analyze women photographers, their work and their experiences. You know, I think more likely many of these women didn't characterize themselves as feminist, um, but they were enjoying some of the advances in equity that were made possible by the generation before them. And, you know, there definitely were some women photographers, like someone like Madame Yavanda, who was connected to, inspired by the suffrage movement. She very much wanted to break away from the conventions of her gender and social class that were expected of her, that you know, that she settled down and get married. And I think a number of these photographers were also involved um, in social and political groups, but maybe not something that we would understand as as a feminist uh, movement. But I think, too, what is interesting is there were many different definitions of what it meant to be a new woman. Um, And that's, you know, what's interesting about this term. And so, you know, some women might have objected to being called a new woman because to them that meant that you were calling them, uh, you know, a flapper. And sometimes the new woman meant, you know, that you were uh, connected to or were an ardent suffragist. So really what I'm hoping is that, you know, through this exhibition, audiences understand that the the reality for, for women was much more nuanced. There's also a section of the show that's devoted to avant-garde experimentation. Did women photographers who took that approach, you know, an experimental approach in their work, in more repressive countries encounter a backlash? Were they accused of embracing Western ideas? You know, speaking of the new woman of the 1920s, she very much took on this visual look with the short hair, the fashionable dress, being outdoors, being active. And this visual look was informed by Western thought, Western fashion, um, particularly as 
these ideas were being portrayed in films um, and, and, you know, printed materials. What I think was challenging as this idea was, was circulating globally that, you know, a number of women in countries outside of, you know, say Western Europe and the United States who were interested and who were trying to embrace more freedoms, they were often accused of going against their traditional culture, of rejecting their nationality, because by embracing the new woman, it was understood that you were embracing sort of a Western modernization and somehow then um, rejecting your own culture. But I think, you know, on the other hand, with regarding photography in this growing interest in modern practices of photography, um, particularly modern aesthetics, right, these avant-garde aesthetics that really championed uh, experimentation with the medium. You know, these ideas were really spreading widely through publications, through camera clubs. So by the 1930s into the 1940s, I think it was much more acceptable to be making this kind of avant-garde work in countries outside of, of Europe and the United States. But what I also found is that, you know, in other countries, there might not have been any support, any infrastructure for artistic or avant-garde photography. So it wasn't just that women were facing these restrictions. It was that these countries really didn't have a system in place, right? They didn't have camera clubs. They didn't have these types of exhibitions. And what you find then is that photographic practice is really situated in, in portrait studios or it's situated in um, scientific practices or documentary practices. So I found perhaps more women photographers in areas, say, of the Middle East, in Asia, that were working in the studio or they were working at, you know, in more of a documentary or, or photojournalistic manner. One gallery in the exhibition is devoted to the city, and you have these women venturing out into the streets to capture these urban scenes. Did the introduction of lighter weight cameras like the Leica play a role in this? How did this all come about? The introduction, the development of smaller lightweight cameras, you know, definitely um, helped spur more women to, to go out on the streets and, and take photographs. Now, the Leica and the Contax camera, these came about in the later 1920s, but there were a number of smaller uh, handheld cameras in use. And, you know, it was this move away from the really large format cameras that you found in studio work that allowed women to be more mobile. And I think that this was coupled with the growing acceptance of women being out in public spaces on their own. You know, and, and the camera sometimes was really this means or a tool that allowed women to be out on their own uh, on the streets, right? That there was a reason they were there because they had the camera and they were taking pictures. So, um, you know, they weren't maybe stopped or, or questioned about it. You know, someone like Lizette Modell was using a Roloflex camera and she was making, you know, these great shots out on the street and was published regularly in magazines like Regards. And I think, too, when you're thinking about these smaller cameras, you're, you're, you know, perhaps a little less conspicuous. They allow you to work in lower light conditions. They allow you to, you know, capture more movements and uh, capture different types of environments where the large format cameras were, were, of course, used in studios, but were also, you know, better at capturing distances and, and landscapes. But you do have somebody like Dorothea Lange, 
who was trained as a studio photographer. Now, she keeps a hold of her large format camera, even while she's out working for the Farm Security Administration in the 1930s. Something like the Speed Graphics camera. Now, this was a more boxy camera. This was often used by uh, professional press photographers. And I think, you know, one of the interesting portraits that's in that first gallery is one of um, Marion Post Wolcott. And she's on assignment and she's carrying two cameras, you know, one strapped around her, another one's in her hands as she's trudging through a snowy field. And so a lot of these women had, you know, different cameras that suited different environments. Did the expansion of travel in this period create new opportunities for women? Could they actually strike out on their own and range far and wide? I think a number of women were able to do this. Many women traveled abroad on assignment for newspapers and magazines. Of course, this was the uh, time period that was the golden age of photojournalism. But what I think is interesting in thinking about this idea of movement, of travel, is that you have that opportunity, right, to go out on assignment, to be um, commissioned to go and travel. But you also have a number of women who are, you know, leaving home involuntarily to avoid persecution, particularly with the rise of the, of the Nazi party. So, you know, someone like Bing really had to leave her career in Paris and go elsewhere. Another photographer who was forced to flee Europe was Hildegard Rosenthal, and she fled Europe in 1937 with her fiancé, Walter, who was Jewish. And they settled in Sao Paulo, Brazil. But this ended up being an opportunity for Hildegard to continue her practice in a different environment. And she made some 3,000 images that really bear witness to the city's evolution into an industrial and financial center. So a number of these women were able to continue their practice, or it helped to find them a position to, to help them earn income as they were being forced to leave, you know, maybe their established studios. Someone like Genevieve Naylor was an established photojournalist in the United States, and she was commissioned to travel to Brazil in 1940. She was on assignment for the Office of Inter-American Affairs and um, was based in Rio and spent about three years in Brazil and took over 1,300 photographs that really explored the country's architecture, culture, and diverse population. What I think is very interesting and something that I didn't know when I first started this project is that Naylor's photographs from you know her time in Brazil became the subject of the Museum of Modern Art's first one-woman photography exhibition in 1943. And this was just actually a few months before MoMA did a show on the photographs of Helen Lovett. And both of these exhibitions were actually supported by Nancy Newhall, who was filling in as curator for her husband, Beaumont. I think another interesting photographer is Ella Mayar. She was a Swiss-born adventurer and was actually an Olympic sailor and skier. And she was someone who was traveling the world during the 1930s. Um, So there are these incredible stories of women traveling the world by car. Mayar passed through the Gobi Desert. She traveled through Turkey, Iran, Afghanistan. And she was writing her own travel books, which she then illustrated with her photographs. She was also working on assignment for newspapers, such as the Daily La Petite Prigienne. And, um, you know, she was able to 
communicate these amazing images and experiences um, throughout the world. I also see that a section of the show is devoted to the body, including nudes and dance and sports photography. Do you think these women presented the body in a way that was very distinct from what a male photographer would have chosen? I think that may be hard to know precisely, but I do think that what we're seeing is a very interesting engagement with the body that is often um, abstracting the body more. Someone like Ilse Salberg created this very innovative serial portrait of her longtime friend turned romantic partner, the painter Anton Raderscheidt. And what she did is she created this eight-part serial portrait that, you know, each shot was this very close-up shot focused on a specific body part. And really, these images are are hard to decipher. Uh, Many of them render the body both familiar and strange. In many ways, it's it's this composite uh, portrait of uh, Raderscheidt. You know, someone like Laura Albangio was really known for her uh, images of nudes. And she took images of both female and male nudes. Um, But she was known to have this more classical aesthetic, though she did definitely focus on different, more modernist cropping. But I think, you know, another person um, that's interesting is someone like Jermaine Cruel. You know, she created a number of images of nude female bodies that really have this compelling push and pull with eroticism. She made these two different series of women, two pairs of women. Some were interacting, you know, in what we would think of as overtly sexual ways. Some were more ambiguous. But she is stepping into that role that was often reserved for male photographers, that of pornographer. But she didn't really create work that was so explicitly, you know, sexual. She instead often lingered on shared gazes, used suggestion, I think, to frustrate the conventions of pornography. Well, thank you, Andrea. Well, thank you. The new woman behind the camera is at the Metropolitan Museum of Art in New York until the 3rd of October, and it's then at the National Gallery of Art in Washington from the 31st of October until the 30th of January next year. Coming up, we hear about AWARE, the archive of women artists in Paris, and we hear about Rania Matar's photographs. But first, here are a few of the top stories on our website this week. Protesters have torn down the statue of Christopher Columbus in a town square in Barranquilla, Colombia, as monuments and memorials marking European colonialism continue to be vandalised or toppled amid nationwide protests in the country. As Gabriela Angeletti reports, statues of Spanish conquistadors have been toppled across Colombia, and last month a statue in Bogotá of the 15th century Spanish queen Isabella of Castile, the so-called Catholic monarch who sponsored Columbus on his westbound voyage, was removed by city officials after it was vandalised during a violent clash between riot police and protesters. Indigenous groups like the Misak, Nasa and Bajau have been at the forefront of the protests, saying that these public statues glorify colonialism, which resulted in genocide, enslavement and the loss of their ancestral land. 
The British 18th century painter Thomas Gainsborough's masterpiece, The Blue Boy, will return to London to go on show at the National Gallery from the 25th of January next year, exactly 100 years to the day since it was last seen in Britain. The work is on loan for the first time from the Huntington Library Art Museum and Botanical Gardens in San Marino, California, where it's been on display since 1928. As Gareth Harris writes, The Blue Boy was bought in 1921 by the railway tycoon Henry Huntington for the then record price of $728,000, to much public uproar. Charles Holmes, the director of the National Gallery at the time, wrote au revoir on the painting stretcher, but never expected his wish to be fulfilled. A 49-year-old construction worker who allegedly stole works by Pablo Picasso and Piet Mondrian from the National Gallery in Athens more than nine years ago has been identified by Greek media as a self-described art freak named George Sarmanzopoulos. And according to his confession to the Hellenic police, he did it all because of his obsession with art. In his confession, Sarmanzopoulos told police he was very sorry for his actions. Immediately after the interrogation, he led them to a wooded ravine in Porto Rafti, about 35 kilometres southeast of Athens, and the paintings were eventually found in plastic. You can read the full extraordinary story and much more at theartnewspaper.com or on our app for iPhone and iPad, which you can get from the App Store. We'll be back after this. The Week in Art is sponsored by Christie's. This summer, Christie's London presents Classic Week, an auction series celebrating art from antiquity to the 20th century. From Roman and Greek marbles, to paintings from the Dutch Golden Age, illuminated manuscripts, to a monolithic slice of meteorite, explore an extraordinary timeline of art and objects across seven live auctions and two online-only auctions. Highlights include Bernardo Bellotto's monumental view of Verona with the Ponte della Nave, Isaac Newton's handwritten revisions to the Principia, and the BJ Eastwood collection of important sporting and Irish pictures. Visit the pre-sale exhibition from the 3rd of July, including an immersive augmented reality experience showcasing Head of a Bear, an exquisite and rare drawing by Leonardo da Vinci. Elsewhere at Christie's, discover Dream Big 2, an online selling exhibition of outdoor sculptures by leading artists of the 20th century and the masters who preceded them. Now open for viewing on christies.com. Welcome back. Now, Camille Morineau was a senior curator of the contemporary collections at the Centre Pompidou in Paris for many years and then set up AWARE, Archives of Women Artists Research and Exhibitions. AWARE is a non-profit association whose ambition is, in Morineau's words, to rewrite the history of art on an equal footing and to place women on the same level as their male counterparts. Our deputy digital editor, Amy Dawson, spoke to Camille about AWARE and its new plans for a permanent space which will act as a library and meeting place in the French capital. So Camille, there's been an increasing effort to shine a light on the lack of gender equality in the art world in the past few decades. And from gender pay gaps in art jobs and a lack of women leading art institutions to huge price discrepancies in works by women compared to those by men, as well as women who have just been left out of art history entirely. It's a pretty sorry state of affairs and your organisation is part of this movement towards gender equality. So can you first tell me what exactly AWARE is? AWARE is uh, first and foremost a website that is featuring today's 750 uh, women artists from the 19th and 20th century from all over the world. It's bilingual and it was created seven years ago uh, exactly actually, so it's my seven years each, to uh, make women artists more visible. And in a very simple way, uh, the website is free. Um, it's made for art history specialists, but also for people who don't know anything about art. And from 
these um, biographies, which are indexed, so you can access these artists um, via their country of birth, um, where they have worked, their techniques, their subjects, the movements they were in, etc. So you can really access them. And this index list is really important because it makes clear that these women artists have been part of every movement, every avant-garde. So it's really a tool to testify to the presence of women artists all over the world and for centuries. And I think, I really believe that it's um, making a change or it will make a change because making this information available um, changes the vicious circle of invisibility of women artists into a virtuous circle of visibility, recognition, and it leads to anything from exhibition to publication, etc. So let's talk about what made you decide to start this. I mean, it's a huge undertaking, you know, putting all of these artists, indexing them and finding their biographies, which, as I said, have been, you know, lost or missed or they're hidden. So I believe there was a a personal experience for you as a curator that made you want to take on this enormous task. Absolutely. Uh, It started in um, 2008, actually, I started working on a big permanent collection presentation, which was thematic, called Elle at Centre Pompidou. It really started with my um, realizing that very few women artists were shown in a permanent collection. At the time, I was working in Centre Pompidou uh, from 2003 on, from gender studies background in the States. And I had in mind that Um, women artists or women in general were invisible from history. It was absolutely clear walking in the rooms of Centre Pompidou collection that there were not a lot of women artists. So I started looking into the storage and found out that there were quite a lot of them. So I proposed to the director to devote the permanent collection to women artists only, which was a pretty crazy thing to do at the time. But strangely enough, it was easier to do that than to put up, for example, a feminist art show, which sounded too bizarre in France. And somehow this huge, crazy thing of um, working in a permanent collection and put away the men was easier, turned out to be easier than having a collective women artist show. So I started working on that. Um, The director told me, let's do that for a few months and see. And I tried working on the collection with a group of other curators. It was a collective work. We worked for like a year and a half. It was extremely intense. And what I found out doing that is that it was actually really difficult to work on women artists because there was absolutely no information about them. A few of them were famous, but very few of them. So most of them didn't have any kind of publication, any books, anything in the museum files, nothing. So I had really to start from scratch and that experience. So we did it anyway, but somehow we put out that show, turned out to be a success. But I remember the, the harshness of it. I mean, the, the, the difficulty and the, the effort we had to, to gather as a group to organize that information, build up a theory, um, put these women artists back into the movements, etc. So I, after that experience, I decided that we really um, collectively, art historians in general and creators needed a tool 
to find that information woman artist more easily. And that's how I started thinking about a website. And actually, I did produce a website for Elle à Centre Pompidou. And um, I had to do it all over again for AWARE. And were you kind of working from any um, example of anything similar elsewhere in another country? Or, or is this completely the first of its kind? Well, there had been some initiatives of um, websites devoted to women artists. I think the National Museum of Women in the Arts started one. The Sackler Collection in Brooklyn had one about feminist art. There was one, I think, about women artists in Latin America. But I, I had noticed that these initiatives, uh, most of them feminist, had a short time uh, life because they didn't have the means to, to, to survive. So I thought if I ever do that one day, I'll just have to raise enough money to make it strong and solid enough to last. And I had that in mind as a general rule that anything strong has to be extremely ambitious. Elle was really ambitious, really working from all the collection, putting up a huge show. It was 7,000 square meters, more than that, 300 works, a thousand artists. And that was the starting of an archive of women artists. And that's why the, the, the important word in AWARE is archives of women artists research and exhibition. It's really gathering information to start a new kind of history. I want to ask about the use of the word feminist, because I know that it can have really negative connotations. Did, have you found that, like, working within this field, working with women artists, do you find it is kind of treated as a dirty word? No, not today anymore, but 10 years ago, it was not an easy word, at least in France, to use. In the French context, it's very a very specific context. The word feminist 10 years ago was linked to what is considered a, a politic movement or a socio-economic movement. It's not so connected to the art world and that makes France very different from America or may, maybe England or even Germany where, where the art world was pretty early connected to um, the feminist movement. It's not the case in France. So that connection had to be made again. And I think somehow Elle did it late, but it really recreated a, a, a strong connection between the art world and the feminist movement. But it's true that at the time, and I explained that, um, I, I didn't use the word feminist. I was working on Elle, which was really a, a feminist gesture. But I, I was very careful not to use the word feminist. I remember with the exception of, of a conference at MoMA where I explained what I was doing to American colleagues. And then I told them, you know, it is a feminist gesture and I am a feminist, but in France, I'm not using that word for strategic reason. I don't want to be attacked. I don't want to be understood wrongly because what I'm using is very uh, classical and neutral tool of um, an historian or an art historian. And somehow the word feminist implied at the time that you wouldn't you wouldn't be a serious historian and a feminist it was not possible to be both and today it's completely changed i think so let's talk about some of the um programming and content that you produce because the website is a huge undertaking of course but actually you do more on top of that so tell me about some of the things that you guys are doing exhibitions prizes and so on 
Yes, the website was the, the sort of first idea, but like a spine, you cannot have a spine without a head and legs and arms. So actually, I, I conceived the website, but very quickly, like the same year, I decided to have a prize uh, because again, at the time, uh, that was 2014, I noticed working on air a few years before that most of the prizes in general, not only in the art world, were given to men. There, there was no question of the parity in prizes. Again, today it's completely changed, but at the time it was different. So I decided another way to, to stress the invisibility of women artists to, to give them a prize, because then people will wonder, why is she giving a prize only to women? Well, because maybe prizes have been only given to men. And then it started a question, and I wanted that question to be public. So I created the Aware Prize very early on, and then... As an organic uh, consequence, having a website with biographies, I wanted to have some kind of link between these biographies. So I wanted to have uh, articles. So it turned out to be a magazine because these women had to be uh, put in context. They had to be put back in movements, etc. So very quickly, um, we had a magazine with people, academics writing texts or curators and then somehow um, these people working together, they had to be brought together. So that, that very quickly turned out to be a symposium and then two and then three. And this symposium had to be published. So we had uh, act the colloque. I can't remember the word in English. So somehow all that was like a plant growing and I couldn't stop it from being what it was, a complex organic structure and it's still growing, moving, changing. And if I don't change, people make me change. One of the things, obviously, COVID has really changed everyone's way of working and started new ideas for organisations. And I think that you have done the same as well with two of your uh, recent initiatives. One is um, animations, short animations about women artists, which are really beautiful. Uh, and done by an artist, obviously, herself. And um, also your podcasts, which you started earlier this year, Les Grandes Dames de l'Art, or Great Women in Art, which are in English and also have these wonderful kind of archival recordings of the artists themselves, which is really beautiful. So it's an opportunity to, to hear them literally speak for themselves. Yes, these two, actually these two ideas, I had them in my head for a long, long time. And somehow uh, the confinement uh, made it absolutely obvious that I had to, to, to do it uh, as an urgent thing because um, for the, um, we call Petites Histoires de Grands Artistes, uh, the animations, COVID was um, a terrible moment where everybody was uh, in prison and in that group, the children um, and students were really cut from school. And so I, I really wanted them to have that information as an urgent thing. Somehow, so, um, COVID, the, the pandemic, is really a huge question mark in our history. What sh should we do? I mean, isn't that the moment to think about what we're doing? And I really thought about was what, what I was doing and wanted to, to broaden the public of aware to go beyond the academics, curators and museum world and address uh, this younger public. So we decided to do it, um, this Petite Histoire, 
and it was a crazy again thing to do. I started working on them without any um, budget somehow, and in the midst of it, I found my my sponsor, um, and I started working with a friend of mine who's been working for Edition de Jeunesse for a long time, and we found that very young illustrator who agreed to do it. And it started really quickly and as an urgency uh, in the midst of confinement. And then once we started doing that, I wanted to do another project, which was also very dear to, to my heart from the beginning, which was working on the archive on the voices of women artists, because as I told you, information is missing. And within that information, that missing information, the women artists, what's missing the most is their voice, whatever they had to say or wanted to say, nobody cared about. There were no critics about their work, of course, but more than that, nobody really took the effort or made the effort to hear what they had to say. So I wanted to do that, to go back in time and find out, find their voices. So I went, I did a research in the uh, television and radio archives to look for um, historical presences of women and with the terror that I might not find anything that nobody really wanted to interview them but it's like it's like looking to the storage of Centre Pompidou somehow as the curators did a wonderful job the journalists did a wonderful job and they sometimes strange reasons happened to interview women artists so I found out this wonderful amazing archives of the voice of great women artists such as Louise Bourgeois or Nikit Saint-Fal, and wanted again to share that with a great, a, a broad audience. So this podcast has the, the animations are really made for anybody to hear. You don't have to be an art historian to watch these little videos or hear this podcast. They're really made for everybody, such as your podcast, I think, Amy. Yeah, and I think they're so nice. And it's, I love listening to Louise Bourgeois kind of talk about her obsession with perfection and that's why she made a series of works because she was always working to make something perfect and it's really incredible to hear her hear her speak. Yes, and it's, it's really different from whatever the critics said or, or wrote about the woman artist's voice and this is something I've, I've used um, also in men artists actually uh, trying to find their voice or whatever text they wrote. I think it's always very different from from whatever art historians have ever had to say, where you tend to project your own stories, your own theory. And so getting back into the artist's voice is really important, and especially in the case for women artists, because they have had a really different life than men. So listening to their voice, you can sort of feel their presence. It's, it's like seeing them, you can sort of feel their body, uh, where they're young or old, and the weight of their experience, and also their, their character, whether they were a happy person or nervous or anxious or perfectionist, as you say. There's so much information in voices, which is something that, of course, I discovered or rediscovered during the confinement, where all of us were like, you know, just restricted to our voices and um, so the voice became such a thing such a wonderful thing and another exciting thing that's recently happened is Aware has a new permanent home in Paris at the Villa Vasiliev um, which is a former studio of the woman artist Russian-born modernist um, Marie Vasiliev 
So what will you do in this new space and what do you have planned next? Well, I'm, t I'm going to tell you about my dreams because I'm not completely sure I've got the means to do that or the sponsor, but I'm hoping for them to come once the place is open. Uh, as you said, yes, we're, it's a wonderful story because um, Marie Vassiliev had this studio near Montparnasse. She was really part of the Cubist modern artist group, very close to Picasso, to Giacometti, very close to the poets like Blaise Sandrard. She's part of this group of artists who painted pillars in La Coupole, this big cafe, Boulevard Montparnasse. So she was really part of that avant-garde, as a lot of women artists at the time, in the 1910s and 1920s, which were a pretty um, egalitarian time, and we have forgotten about that. And then she was forgotten by history, like most of the women artists, but at the time she was quite famous, not only because she was a very important artist, but also a very generous person. She decided after the war to open a canteen, a cheap restaurant, for artists who were at the time really poor. There was no market, no art market, very few galleries, so most of the artists were really hungry. So she opened that canteen um, in that place where we're going to be. So she had the, the studio, like a small restaurant, a lot of parties, a lot of drinking, you know, it's in France, <laughs> a lot of ball, dancing, it's, it's les années folles. Um, so all of that um, made her famous and somehow we remember the cantine of Marie Vassiliev more than her art. So it's really nice for us to be uh, back in that studio in that very historical place. So we'll have a larger library. I hope we can open to groups of people to have small symposiums in the place, hopefully classes with professors maybe also a residence for art historians. There's a lot of uh, residence for artists, but not enough, I think, for historians like me <laughs> or others. Um, so I really hope to go back to the 1920s and have some kind of a canteen, <laughs> a 21st century canteen in the same spirit. Maybe some dancing, probably some fresh champagne. <laughs> Uh, waiting, you know, at, it sounds like, great. in the French spirit. Where do I sign <laughs> up? <laughs> Now. <laughs> well, it's very exciting and I look forward to seeing what you do with the space and visiting hopefully one day soon. And thank you so much for everything that you do for Women in the Arts. Thank you, Amy. Thank you for your interest. You can find out more about AWARE at awarewomenartists.com. And finally, it's time for Work of the Week. The National Museum of Women in the Arts in Washington, D.C. describes itself as the world's only major museum solely dedicated to championing women artists. It owns more than 5,500 works by artists from Vigi Lebrun to Shireen Neshad. The museum announced in May that it will close for around two years, beginning in August, for a $66 million renovation. Among the highlights of its displays before it closes are photographs by the Lebanese-American artist Rania Matar from the series She from 2019. Helen Stoilus, the art newspaper's editor in the Americas, spoke to Irene Zara, a curator at the National Museum of Women in the Arts, about the works. 
Aurene, you've chosen three works from a series by Rania Matar. She's a Lebanese-American photographer, right? And you have three works in the museum's collection, two of which are on view, from her She series. And this is a series where she photographs women all over the world. They're in their 20s. They're kind of women on the cusp in certain ways. Yes, yes, exactly. So the three works that are in uh, the collection of the National Museum of Women in the Arts are all from this ongoing series called She that Rania began in 2017. um, And she's still photographing. Um, A little bit about Rania so you can understand where the series is coming from. So she is a Lebanese, Palestinian, American. She was born and raised in Beirut. And then uh, she relocated to the U.S. She's based in Boston now. Um, So the U.S. and Lebanon are her two homelands. And her works and all of her uh, projects really show these cross-cultural connections. They're really sort of integrally tied to who she is as uh, a person, as an artist. And she specifically shows these cross-cultural connections through the figure of the woman. But she specifically follows the phases of the lives of her daughter. So her earlier series showed young girls, you know, pre-teenage girls in their bedrooms surrounded by their belongings. Um, Sometimes they were shy, sometimes they showed angst, sometimes they were confident. And that was when her own daughters were at that age. Now her daughters have gone off to college, they're entering the workforce, and that's when she began this series of women in their early 20s who are kind of entering adulthood and facing life on their own for the first time outside the familiarity and comfort of their homes. She actually began this series um, at a residency in Kenyon College in Gambier, Ohio. So she began this series in the Midwest, and she travels back and forth between the Middle East and the U.S. photographing um, these young girls. Sometimes she puts a call out for models. Sometimes she runs into them on the street and she finds them really kind of just perfect. She, she just has this sense that this model would be perfect for my project. And she makes the ask and they often say yes. And then she takes these beautiful pictures as a, as a result and it gets into the series. And the women, I mean, they seem kind of all stripes, you know, and they're very much like a young woman you would see at a bus stop or, you know, you would kind of like come across at the grocery store or, Absolutely. And working with Rania, um, I've become sort of friends with her and she's told me all of these stories about how she meets these women. You know, the the three works that are in our collection, one of these women, Yara, she's from Cairo, Leah, she is in Beirut, and then there's Raven, who is an American. Um, I believe she went to school in Kansas City, but Rania met her at a diner in Miami. So this, this one really beautiful photograph is called Raven, Miami Beach, Florida, where She ran into her and she saw that she had these gorgeous locks of blonde hair and she asked her if she could take a a photograph of her for her series Um, and Raven said yes and that's how they became friends and it's, it's really a collaboration and the, the funny thing is, I actually met Raven. So Raven came to the museum. So we had an exhibition of photographs uh, called Live Dangerously. And it was about, you know, women kind of presiding over their environments uh, in nature. And we borrowed these three photographs from Rania for the show uh, and eventually acquired it into the collection. So Raven came to see her photograph. Oh, wow. And she was a superstar. As soon as she walked into the galleries, like the security guards knew her, the people who worked at the museum knew her. She was 
so moved and touched, and we were so moved to see her there. She is a woman uh, with albinism. Uh, she's an African-American woman, and she she got really touched by it. And she actually told Rania, thank you for seeing the beauty in me. I mean, it's a beautiful image. I'm sure people recognized her immediately because it's such an eye-catching image. She's standing kind of in the surf. Totally carefree. You know, with her hair in the air and the kind of like waves crashing at her feet. It's really amazing. Yeah, it brings a real sense of peace when you look at that image. Like she seems totally at peace. There's uh, there's wind blowing through her hair. She is in standing in front of some crashing waves. I mean, you feel the sense of total calm looking mm. at this image, you know. And not every image has that same sensibility. And I think there's a real sort of multidimensional work to these images. And she has like, oh, hundreds in this body of work. So it's really capturing, I think, the various personalities and characteristics and dimensions that young women show all over the world, but also the, the common threads, I think, that, that bind us and connect us. And it seems like their setting is just as important as the women themselves. Like it's kind of showing their place in the world. Exactly. You know, the, um, yes. the, the picture you mentioned, the photograph of Leia in Beirut, she's in this kind of historic kind of falling apart building. Yes, so Leia is standing in this old, dilapidated 19th century mansion called La Maison Rose, the, the pink house. And it's one of these historical structures that are being demolished as often happens in these cities through urbanization in Mm. favor of high rises and um, it was built again 19th century and a lot of these buildings became sort of run down during the Lebanese civil war obviously Leia and other girls her age did not live through that experience so Rania is almost showing this passage of time, Mm. this generation that did not live through the Lebanese Civil War, but is growing up in its collective memory. And I really love that image because of the gaze of the sitter, of Leia. You know, she is looking directly at us. So it's almost like she's connecting with us and she's showing that the burden of, you know, society, Beirut, Lebanese society, is now on her generation, on her generation to kind of take it forward. She does seem like she carries a lot of weight on her shoulders. She does. And again, it's very different from Raven that I just mentioned. It's it's not a carefree image. She's dressed in this sort of black lace. She's got her hair down. And she is surrounded by texture. And, and Rania was trained as an architect. So she has a really great feel for a built environment and a textured space and she loves these old sort of ramshackled houses and buildings in Beirut and she loves to photograph her models in those kinds of spaces so they're all outdoor spaces but there are also a lot of these indoor spaces and that particular space is just gorgeous with this textures and the paint peeling and you can kind of still see that pink paint that gives that building its name you're absolutely right to, to your point earlier. The sense of space and place is just as important as the woman in the photo. And this photograph is the cover for the book on the series, right? Yes. So Rania's first major publication of this body of work is being published by Radius Books, uh, which is a publishing company based in Santa Fe, New Mexico. It actually just went to print, so she's we're all really excited about it. There are over 80 images from this body of work. She's narrowed it down to over, uh, I think, about 83 uh, in the book. And there are two essays. Uh, one is authored by me, and the other is 
written by Mark Alice Durant, who's a wonderful writer based in Baltimore, and also the founder of St. Lucie Books, and also a really good friend of Rania's. So oh, the three of us sort of worked together on this, um, and it should be a wonderful publication that comes out. And then the last work that's in the museum's collection from the series is Yara from Cairo. Yes, exactly. What are these trees? They're incredible. A banyan tree with its really kind of curled limbs. So she looks like she's emerging or being kind of like... She looks like a tree nymph. Total. I was going to say a tree nymph. She looks like she's coming out like the spirit of the tree. Yeah. This one I really enjoy because it, I mean, for me, it's it's a little uncanny and a little eerie because I don't know if she's she's sneaking up on you, if she's part of the tree. I mean, she looks otherworldly, almost supernatural here. And it also goes to Vanya's uh, collaborative method. So when uh, Yara was first being photographed in this setting, she had long sleeves. And Rania noticed that she has these really long limbs that go so that echo the limbs of the tree so well. So they actually went back to Yara's house and Yara picked out one of her own dresses uh, that showed off her arms. Um, so they kind of work together to come to this image where you can really see how her knuckles, her fingers, her her arms echo the kind of the twists and curls of the of the limbs and trunks of the tree. It's it's a really interesting image. And of course, you can't see her face, but you could see her hair. And that's the other thing I should mention is that when when you look through this series, hair is a really, really important element. You see some pink dyed hair. You see some very, you know, kind of natural hair and some more see coiffed. afros. Yeah. You see coiffed hair. You see long blonde hair. You see curly hair, all kinds of textured hair. Hair was really important for Rania at the time that she was doing her residency. And she has talked about this openly. She saw that she was losing her hair and hair is such an important part of her identity that you see that it became a really important characteristic in her photographs um, at the time. And, and hair as a sign of, of youth and, and maturity and maturing and a sign of you know, how you want to express yourself. So that's why you have you know, dyed hair and natural hair and long hair and short hair. And yeah, I really think it's almost like another character in the composition. Hair is a really important and integral part of these photographs. So Yara and Leia are currently on view at the museum, right? Yara and Leia are currently on view in this gallery that I curated called Roots to Roots. R-O-O-T-S to Roots, R-O-U-T-E-S. And Rania's images fit perfectly in there because that gallery is all about women finding their identity, not just necessarily where they were born, but through all the journeys they have taken. So that can apply to the sitters in Rania's images, but also Rania herself, the journey that she has taken as she has traveled cross-culturally from the Middle East to the U.S. So, And the museum's actually closing in August to kind of prepare for this big renovation, right? We have a multi-year renovation coming up. So yes, if you want to come to the National Museum of Women in the Arts, you have a couple more months to do so. We're closing at the end of summer. And when we come back, we hope to come back in a better, improved building uh, with lots of exciting uh, new gallery space to show off all of our gorgeous artworks. It must be very exciting as a curator to, to be anticipating these new galleries that you're going to get to play around with. Absolutely, absolutely. It's a really interesting historical building, but it's got a lot of quirky spaces uh, <laughs> that need need a little a little TLC. So uh, we're excited to come back to some new spaces um, 
that will accommodate both historical and contemporary art. So we're all thrilled. Well, thank you so much, Aureen. This has been wonderful. It's been great hearing from you. The pleasure was mine. Thank you for having me. The works by Rania Matar are on view at the National Museum of Women in the Arts now. And remember, the museum closes on the 9th of August. And that's all for this episode. You can subscribe to the art newspaper at theartnewspaper.com. Click on the subscribe link at the top left of the page and you'll find a range of subscriptions. And do subscribe to this podcast and a brush with if you haven't already done so. Please give us a rating or review if you've enjoyed it. We're on Twitter at Tan Audio and on Facebook and Instagram, of course. The Week in Art is produced by Julia Mahalska, Amy Dawson and David Clack. And David is also the editor and sound designer. Thanks also to Henrietta Bentall and Daniela Hathaway and to this week's guest. Nancy and Andrea, Amy and Camille, Helen and Aurie. And thank you for listening. We're now taking a break over the summer, but in the meantime, do listen to our archive of more than 160 episodes and, of course, listen to A Brush With. Remember, there are new episodes coming at the end of July. The Week in Art is back on the 3rd of September and then every week until the holidays. Bye for now. The Week in Art is sponsored by Christie's. Visit christies.com to find out more about the world's leading auction house since 1766. Auction, private sales, online, art, anytime.